Hello, everybody, and um, I'm amazed to see so many of you here dragging your hangovers with you. Um, this is thrilling. Um, it shows how many people really care about what we're going to talk about today. Um, the session is controversially named Storytelling the Preschool Parent Trap, on, on the understanding that we can today blame the parents for everything. <laughs> Again, um, we've got a fantastic um, panel here uh, to help us with this conversation, and we hope that you'll be able to join in as well and um, have some thoughts, and I'm sure you'll have some questions. Um, I asked our panel to tell me a little bit about themselves and perhaps something unusual that we didn't previously know. So I'm going to go one at a time here. Well, I could probably give you my unusual bit. I am Melly Buse. I run a company called Ad Astra Creative and another company called Ad Astra Development, um, probably best known for Grandpa My Pocket, which is on CBeebies. Um, I've been working in the industry for a very long time, and my unusual thing is that I can sing the books of the Old Testament. <laughs> so later, maybe. Yeah, you and I on that. Um, Fiona Scott, hand, put your hand up, John. This is Fiona Scott. Fiona is an academic. Um, she's here in Sheffield. Her particular interests are in early childhood TV and related media and social class. Fiona is currently working on a PhD about uh, preschool children's viewing habits, so she's the perfect person to give us some of the science here. Um, Fiona's unusual little quirk, which I think we're all warm towards, is that she confesses to be the only person in the world who still watches Neighbours. Every day. Uh, which Every I day. think is very comforting, because if somebody with an enormous brain still watches Neighbours, there's hope. <laughs> Lucy Murphy. Yay. Um, Lucy is a producer and a script editor and a writer. Um, she's been in the children's industry for um, a number of years, and she's worked on wonderful shows like the Tate Movie Project, The Gruffalo, and more recently... The most beautiful thing ever, the <laughs> Bing Bunny series on CBeebies, which I'm a huge fan of, as you've probably realised. Um, Lucy says that uh, she started her life in London Weekend Television and a combination of uh, Scylla and Jeremy Beadle made her jump into the kids' arena. Not, not out of the window, then, <laughs> happily for us. Alison Pierce. Alison. Alison is here in, in her capacity um, of a, as a mother, so because we thought we'd have a mother here. Um, but she is also um, an academic and she lectures in film and television studies. Um, shortly to go to the University of York. Yeah. Very posh. Um, <laughs> Dead posh, there's posh. Um, Alison says that her hard drive at home used to be full of hard-hitting US dramas and it's now full of Sean the Sheep and Adventure Time. <laughs> Sean the Sheep brings us rather elegantly onto Dave Ingham. There he is. Um, Dave has written on Sean the Sheep. He's a very well-established showrunner, writer, content creator in the preschool children's arena. Um, also worked on Charlie and Lola with me some time ago. And he's recently done a show called Bodge, which he's going to talk to us about, a CBBS show. And he is also head-writing the wonderful new series of The Clangers. Um, in Dave's Secret Life, he tells me he plays the ukulele. And he also has an aversion to the word pubes. <laughs> so we'll be sure to use that as much as we can during this session in an age-appropriate kind of way. <laughs> Last but by no means least, Alison. Alison Stewart, who is head of everything, head of the universe. She is CBB's production, animation and acquisitions. Um, Ali has a lot of experience in uh, children's television. She's been in the industry for most of her career both inside and outside the BBC, as a producer, a director and a writer. Um, 
Ali has said that I can share with you the fact that we were both at university together doing a drama degree, and on one particular occasion we were in a show together called The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon, Marigolds. Well, we, was a classic. we were hip and happening in those days. Um, in which Alison played my mum. I was very versatile. <laughs> so, moving on, a little bit of context perhaps first, and I'll be really quick, and then it's absolutely over to um, everybody else. Um, I don't know whether any of you saw a fantastic Channel 4 documentary called The Secret Life of Four-Year-Olds recently. It was a one-off, and uh, my spies tell me it's going to go to series. It was a fly-on-the-wall documentary about four-year-olds. They bunged a load of four-year-olds into various situations, no adults, camera on them. It was the most enchanting and illuminating piece of, um, piece of work. So it was warts and all. They squabbled, they fought, they fell out, they fell in. Um, they stole chocolate. Um, uh, it, it was, it, they had tantrums, they had meltdowns. It was absolutely nature red in tooth and claw. And it got me thinking more about this sort of four to six age range that we try so hard to cater for, but we do have challenges with. And I then went into a school to do a story session with a whole bunch of sort of four to eight-year-olds. Um, and they were coming up with the most amazing ideas, all fantasy, obviously, because their default position is how to train your dragon. Um, and we had giants with exploding buttocks and I don't know we had you know pus spewing dragons and wonderful sort of jeopardy and fantasy and fun and humor and I came home hugely energized by this and sat at my computer thinking oh I'm going to plagiarize all of this and then I suddenly thought on linear television platforms this is a really hard hard thing to do because we don't really have anywhere for it and I think generally you know across the industry we all recognize that this is a challenge so today we're going to try and solve the problem. So I'm going to first come to Alison Stewart. If you could, Ali, give us an overview of this demographic, the broad preschool demographic and how it breaks down, mm -hmm. not just at the BBC and not just in the UK, but just internationally as well. That would be really useful just to set the scene. Okay. Um, so preschool uh, varies across the world in terms of um, the age that people call preschool. Um, CBeebies looks after children up to and including the age of six, um, which breaks them into two very, very different age categories. So as well as the four to sixes, which we're really talking about today, we have a great duty of care to the very young ones, the first ones who are beginning to watch, and indeed their parents. So we'll talk about audience and relationships later. So we make programmes for children up to six. Um, in other areas of the world, that changes. Um, quite a lot of so-called preschool channels only cater for children between four and seven. And as I travel around the world and go to markets and get pitch programmes, there are quite a few that are great ideas, but they're just, just a little bit too edgy for our preschool. Um, and they fall into a little gap because they're just a little bit too unedgy for the next channel up, which is CBBC. So um, certain things that I think we'll be talking about today, they're out there, but they're just, just not... Um, we can't trap them satisfactorily for our channel. So um, four to seven is quite a widely used category. Uh, a lot of territories don't make programmes at all for children under three. They just don't think they should be watching. Um, so, so ours kind of is a little bit singular, the way that we work ours, and um, have to work very hard to make sure that that wide age range of children up to six can be catered for. Um, the other thing to say is, in terms of... Um, 
emotional conflict and jeopardy, um, anything that, that might be deemed too scary for preschoolers, that also varies a lot in terms of different territories around the world. Um, and I've seen some fantastic shows um, aimed at preschool audience which deal with death um, and divorce and they're done very sensitively. Uh, um, the death one was, well, you wouldn't believe it, it was in a preschool festival um, and it was all about a goose that was nearing the end of his life and death comes to walk with him. And death was like a grim reaper who sort of sat down beside him and they had a philosophical conversation and then he curled up and it was time to go and he went to sleep and it was all very peaceful. You'd never get that um, in other areas of the world. Um, a beautiful German animation made by ZDF called um, The Boy and the Beast about a little boy whose parents um, have divorced and you see him with this beast monster who actually is his mum, who's really suffering and he doesn't quite understand. And through the programme you see the resolution of that and um, it's, it's beautifully made. Um, so those, 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 are, those are German programmes. Um, Scandinavia, uh, Norway in particular, make beautiful drama for that wider preschool audience dealing with, with really quite serious emotional issues. Um, but that's deemed okay for their preschool and indeed their beautiful programmes. Um, uh, when you go over to North America, uh, quite, quite often they tend to be a little bit more careful, certainly in terms of what they, they see as suitable for, for drama for preschoolers. And bringing all that round, if you're working in any area of co-production where you have to go around the world and get investment from different places, this becomes a real issue when you're writing narrative um, because there will always be disputes about um, level and tone um, and quite often writers and producers are... are asked to move back to the more careful standpoint so I think that's that's an issue that's so that great. that is sort of broadly the world fantastic and really interesting Ali because you've touched already on the finance um, models that influence our content which we'll probably come to a bit later but also really interesting to hear that there is content out there and uh, maybe maybe there's somewhere where we can put that in a safe way that will um, enrich our audiences as well I want to come on now to Fiona because we want the science. So we want to hear from Fiona with all her research into the early years. Um, what cognitive stage are they at when they get to four? What happens at four that means that they can uh, assimilate and aspire to more challenging, more risk-taking, more emotionally um, uh, real uh, storylines? What is it that kicks in at four? and uh, why do they need this kind of content. So over to you, Fiona, just to give us a little outline of that yeah. so we know where we are. Well, um, I've promised Melly some science, so I'm going to go right back to uh, developmental psychology and Piaget. Um, the earliest sort of psychological studies suggest that... that children between the ages of two and seven are at what they call the pre-operational stage um, and I think there are a lot of lab studies that really suggest that throughout this stage children are undergoing particular changes um, cognitively when children start to get more to the sort of four to six band you do see that they are able to pay more attention to the screen um, and this is something that maybe sounds quite boring on paper but when you're actually in the field researching with children it's quite pronounced um, so children sort of at the naught to six uh, 
to four, not to three, are very much sort of glancing at the screen occasionally. They're doing a lot of things around the television. They're playing, um, they're singing, maybe they're picking up on words. Um, and you get more to the four to six, you're starting to see really children sitting down in front of the sets, paying attention. And that's very much related to this cognitive stage. I think it's really important to say, Alison mentioned that um, children are very different across the world. Um, even within, you know, my research is in Sheffield, even within Sheffield, every child has their own trajectory. Every child sort of changes at a different pace. So it's, it's not really quite as straightforward as that. Um, but I do think that this kind of move towards paying more attention to the screen um, correlates with a need um, for strong narrative, um, strong storytelling. Um, children at this stage are much more able to converse with you, to talk about what happened in the programme. And I think there's a desire there and a need. Um, I don't know if any of you were at my session yesterday, but children can get quite frustrated if you interrupt them with lots of boring research questions while they're trying to pay attention to those stories. Um, the other important thing to mention is obviously children aren't watching in a social vacuum um, and we know that um, as children get a little bit older um, they're tending to watch a little bit less with adults, a little bit more with other peers and that's um, having an impact on what they're interested in. So in particular you start to see uh, really interesting sort of protestations about this programme is too babyish. Um, even though perhaps they're still actually really engaged with it, we'll sit through the whole thing. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, quite interesting. Is and it that there's a sort of um, mixture that at one moment your four-year-old is still, you know, watching Peppa Pig, and the next minute, you know, they're, they're watching Star Wars, but they still need that kind of baby content as a sort of secure little yeah, blanket? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think every child is different, but you definitely do see that. I think also we often overlook the influence that siblings will have. Mm. So often you have uh, two or three children in a household and I see a lot of examples of an older child who will sort of be quite rude about Peppa Pig but will actually love the opportunity to sit down and watch with a younger sibling. Um, so, yeah, I think there is that element of zigzagging back and forward. Neighbours, darling, it's his neighbours. <laughs> neighbours is adult appropriate. Um, but, yeah, the last thing I wanted to mention is um, touching on what Alison mentioned around jeopardy, fear. Um, children, there's a, there's a growing body of research that suggests that children are able to recognise um, what we call modality. So certain features in different programmes. Um, so if they watch a cartoon, they're very much aware that uh, if... Bugs Bunny gets a terrible injury, that's very different than a live action uh, film or indeed real life. Um, but I think this is really complicated and what's starting to emerge from my research is, first of all, that I think children make these judgments from a much earlier age than developmental psychologists suggest. So I think there is an awareness there from a very early age. Um, and the second thing is that actually I've noticed that sometimes it's the younger children who can be uh, very engaged with the more sort of uh, potentially frightening sort of nasty scary things um, so one of my children she's just under four and her favorite program is actually Adventure Time she, she loves it and she's also massively into werewolves vampires and I think there is there is something there going on around the fact that very young children can make these judgments they know it's not real 
but also they haven't really started um, to kind of associate real emotion, real fear with it. Um, my children over four, um, to a certain extent, I mentioned yesterday we were watching Topsy and Tim and one of the little girls said that she was finding it really scary. And I don't think scary is the real word, but I think what is going on is that they're starting to recognise the emotion in a much more realistic way. And the fact is, your point being, I imagine, that this is actually good for them. Yeah, bad ab- for them. absolutely, um, yeah. You know, processing one's fears through art. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, realistically, I think this is absolutely... It's, it's a part of child development. Um, it's going to happen anyway. It's going to happen when they go to school. Um, and they do talk to their parents about this, even if the parent's not watching with them. They talk to their parents, they talk to their friends increasingly. So possibly can we afford to take some more risks? That's, that's terrific. Thank you, thank you, Fiona. Alison... As a mum, controversial mum, can you give us your sort of view? You have a four-year-old yeah. and a one-year-old. So what are, what are the viewing choices in your, in your house and what has the preschool channel got to offer you? Okay, so I have two girls. Um, I have Kitty, who's four, and she's going to be five in September. And I have Edith, who's one, and she's going to be two in September. Um, And to point out at home, we don't have Sky or Netflix or cable. We've just got Freeview, so that's kind of a limitation on what can be watched. (laughs) But um, we have real rows over the telly. Um, My four-year-old has pretty much totally rejected CBeebies now as um, babyish telly, just what you were saying, doesn't want to watch it. Actually, secretly, when she's really tired, about six o'clock and Abney and Teal comes on, she'll watch it. But she doesn't want to watch it. Um, My one-year-old is at a sufficient age now where she's very vocal about what she wants, um, but she doesn't really have the words for it. So whenever we put on a programme that's for Kitty, um, which I'll explain the sort are, um, Edith will often shout all the way through it for she short, which is Sean the Sheep. And it's the only programme that both of them will watch and be totally absorbed by. Sean the Sheep is on all the time in our house. It really cuts across both the ages. The key programmes that Kitty watches are all on CBBC. Um, She loves Wolf Blood, going back to the werewolf thing again. Um, She loves Horrible Histories, um, Tracy Beaker and Arthur. Um, her favourite programme is Adventure Time and I do occasionally kind of wonder, oh it is quite scary, some of that's quite freaky, especially around the vampire girl, but she just loves it and she loves being frightened. Um, she also likes My Little Pony on Tiny Pot, but I'm not as big a fan of that. <laughs> Aha, the mother interferes. Yeah. <laughs> well no, I, I've got it on series link, I do <laughs> let her watch it, oh, but I just... Oh. <laughs> Excellent. Well, so so Kitty basically has gone beyond. At the age of four, your daughter has gone beyond, but you've also done a bit of research with some of the peer groups. Yeah, well, my crucial thing is Kitty is going to school in September. She's starting primary school. Um, She currently goes to a preschool, and she's also a childminder where she mixes with much older children up until the top of primary school level. And I've noticed in the past few months, so kind of from four and a half, that she is actively looking at programmes that feature children that are quite a few years older than her, that um, are already of a primary school age. She's really interested in seeing programmes with older children in, and she's actively herself trying to make this transition to watching more of the grown-up programmes and rejecting the ones that are more childlike. 
Um, what, she, what we did find, though, particularly with clangers, is that unlike most of the television programmes which are watched on their own or films that are always watched nearly everywhere as family time, um, the Clangers is watched as a kind of multi-generational event. So we will all sit and watch Clangers together. Or what I'm finding more consistently is a lot of grandparents are recording Clangers and then when the children come round, they're sitting and watching it with their grandchildren. So Clangers is kind of in its own category at the moment. Um, what I do find with um, my friends, kind of my peers that I've discuss this with and again let's be honest they're all kind of white middle class professionals so it's not speaking for everybody um, but Netflix is absolutely dominant um, nearly everyone that I've spoken to their children who are aged between four and seven are watching on Netflix and they're watching their own devices as well so they're watching on tablets they're watching on phones they're not necessarily watching on the telly um, one of my friends who's got four children aged between two and eight said they're all watching on tablets like laid upside down on their armchairs like they're all watching independently um, no one is watching CBeebies um, from kind of the age of four onwards. They're watching um, other things in particular. Um, also YouTube. A lot of watching Disney princess makeup tutorials on YouTube, which is completely unknown to me. Um, what I did find consistently with my friends is a complete consensus that there's a gap between the kind of preschool, the ages to four and seven, by the time they've hit four, especially if there's older siblings, but by the time they've hit four, CBeebies is no longer being watched and not all of the programmes on CBBC are of interest. Instead, people are picking and choosing with stuff off iPlayer, stuff off Nick Jr., stuff off Netflix. There's a real sense of it being a kind of hodgepodge stage in television development. I'm going to let Alison come back on that now because we, this is the point of view of one kind of mother who is saying, essentially, we need more challenging, more risk-taking on the preschool channels if we're going to cater for that older age range. But I do want to come back to Ali from CBeebies because uh, I think she can probably give us the perspective on the other kind of mother who is, has a great influence on, on what we are able to do. And after all, this is called the parent trap. So let's hear, let's hear it from you, Ali, what the trap is, what our problem is here. Um, I mean, it, it's, there are so many things to say about what's available now for children who are still in the preschool category. You've already started talking about choices that they have now in terms of Netflix, in terms of YouTube, which we know that preschoolers love. Um, and the fact that, that they are going to school from the point where they're getting to that turning point of four and they're going into school um, and mixing critically with older children, they shoot forward in what they want. And we do know that um, a lot of them will go too babyish, we don't watch it, and we also know, because we have the figures, that they do. But they just don't <laughs> want to tell anyone they're doing it. But they choose, and they're, they're beginning to choose, that's great. But as I said earlier, we do um, cater for children from the ages of broadly two. I mean, some younger babies will watch some of the, um, the shows like In the Night Garden, but really and truly we don't expect them to stick with the show until they're about two. So two and three-year-olds are the heartland preschoolers, if you like. And the thing about two and three-year-olds is that a lot of them have very, very, very active parents and carers. And it's the parents and carers who actually are the ones who are probably more conservative 
than, um, than the children might be if they were left to their own devices. And you will, um, we do get constant complaints about you told a story about a monster and my child got scared and won't sleep. And you go back and the story is about a fluffy, cuddly monster, which isn't scary at all. And the parent hasn't been able to have that conversation with the child and make a definition. So monsters, gone. You know, we don't have monsters on CBBS. Well, we do, but they don't want them. Um, so you're always driving between the, the, the very, very overactive, caring adults who are protecting these children, who don't want us to deal with subjects um, of any controversy. So there are the odd programme now. We have um, programmes which have dealt with death of a pet, for instance, and some parents will say, we reserve the right to talk about issues like that with our children. We don't want them to see it on the television. They will get scared. They don't like it. Um, and I suppose I would suggest that for that young age group, the opinions that we're hearing are not necessarily children's opinions, they're, they're their parents' and carers' opinions of them. Do you think that partly this is... I mean, I can put my hand up here as the parent of an anxious child. Many years ago, I'm sure she won't mind me mentioning it now, and she won't know, will she? <laughs> um, and you know what? You don't want to see your kid anxious. You just, it wrecks you as a mother. You don't want to see them upset. You don't want them to come into the kitchen when you're making the fish fingers and say, oh, Charlie and Lola's hamsters died, because you know that she's going to be awake all night thinking the cat is going to die. And I think that, that you know, there is a sort of... I have some sympathy <clears throat> with this, but I also have slightly altered my view, because when I did talk to in fact, it was Becky Parry who's here somewhere, I think, who I think is supervising... Is she supervising your PhD? She yes. <laughs> and Becky, when I told her this, she said, so what? So what if she was anxious? It's a learn. She'll get mm. over it. And do you know what? She was so right. But I needed educating them. Mm. But this is a hard call, Well, there's, there's a point... There's, the point to make, I suppose, is the fact that um, we always say, at any time, a very young child could be watching any of the programmes on CBeebies on their own in a room. And they, they, if they see something with slightly older content and they haven't got a parent or a carer to help them understand it, they can become disturbed. And so, actually, people who complain their children are scared. Sometimes they're the parents who aren't in the room when the child sees something, so they can't help them come to terms with it. So we zone our programmes through the day, as you probably know, so that the older shows go on before the kids go to school, four to sixes, when they come back. And the younger children have material in the middle of the day. But there's nothing there to stop a child watching anything at any time. So that's, that's the basic issue. Having said that, there are programmes that um, very much engage, are made for and engage that older group. Um, and I think the, the children who are first born in a, in a household who are not like your daughter, they're not actually having access to the older children, they will stay with some of those shows um, and I, I can talk about the shows later if you want or tell you that, that there are... Katie Morag is, is a case in point. And that was a, an amazing um, experiment, really, mm. wasn't it, Anne? Well, it was a show that was made from BBC Scotland by an independent company um, called Move On Up, and Katie Morag, Adventures Of, was a, a storybook, series of stories written in the 1970s about a little girl who lives um, in the Highlands and Islands, Isle of Skye, I think. Um, and it's taken a long time to get it to screen. It's beautifully made, it's filmic, and it played on Sunday tea time to a family audience. So there'll be parents who knew the stories, um, there'll be children who came to them for the first time. Katie Morag is allowed to wander the, the countryside on her own. There are definitely stories of emotional conflict and issues there. It's beautifully written, it's very authentic, and I don't think we had a word of issue from anywhere. I see Michael in the audience. 
It, there weren't, were there? No. No complaints, no worries. Um, no, that child shouldn't be wandering around on her own or any of that. So, oh, one. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. You, you covered your back mm. in the voiceover mm, yeah. of the opening titles. Yeah, which it's all, and it's beautifully, beautifully done. Um, there are adventure shows, <coughs> animation, which appeal to the older boys. There's a pirate game show, which everybody loves. But they are, I appreciate, the, um, the drama is is restricted by the fact that there are certain things that you would want to put in a drama that um, the very youngest ones can't cope with. And I know that the producers and the writers, and they're going to talk now, will we'll tell you about all of that. And there are two there who've worked on a show that has actually cut through. Bing Bunny is an animation for the younger ones, but it doesn't shy away from the issues. So, you know... That's, that's great. Thank it's you, moving. I'm going to come to Dave now, um, because, Dave, uh, you've been working... I mean, I know Bodge is not aimed at the older age range and in terms of story yeah. um, it's it's young it's that sweet spot of about three I guess um, but it has um, a, a, a spread so it's one of those shows that was very focused on a particular demographic but it has got a broader reach than perhaps you would expect it to have how do you account for that Dave? Um, first of all we account for that because I'm, I'm guilty I'm guilty of self-censorship um, and I'll come to Bodge a little bit later, but I just want to say something. Get it off my chest. I am guilty of self-censorship. Years ago, my son, one of my sons, was bullied in a playground, and I had an opportunity to write a story about bullying for an age range, and I pulled it, because I didn't think it would be accepted. And I really, after that moment, and I suddenly realised, why did I do that? Why did The series had finished, I didn't have that opportunity to do that, and I realised I'm not going to do that again. Um, I'm going to write, and this is where I come to bodge, is, yeah, we're aiming for that age range, but I'm going to write now for family. And because it's... Tony Collingwood once told me that it's easier to write up and high and bring it down than to write down and bring it up because you're, you're not patronising anybody by doing it that way. And you're totally right. And um, so with bodge... The idea was for us that, yeah, we were writing, we've got a certain suite, but a certain demographic we're writing for. But I want to write for as many people as possible and get them all on the, on the, on the sofa together. And that's an ethos I've tried to use with every show that I write now. And um, so what we did was we stretched it tonally. So there are certain elements of Bodge where we have, like, Mr Cloppity, the park keeper, um, who talks way above everybody's heads. But because we're working with the visual medium, we can show that the kids just don't understand what he's talking about. So it's, uh, it's, it, it, makes, it adds that human level, really, for, for adults, for, for the older children. And looking on the Facebook website and people's reaction, he's one of the most popular characters with adults. But do you so think that's because he's real? Yeah, it's about I mean, it's authenticity. That, it's all about that authenticity. Yes, it? exactly. And I think, you know, what, what we've sort of t- tended to do a bit in preschool is fall into a little bit of a glib trap because we've been doing it forever. Um, and there's this sort of kind of sense of false optimism that we feed the kids. Um, even, you know, even the younger ones, I think, you, mm. you've, you've, you've exactly you nailed it there. By yeah. saying if you, if you put something real in that they really recognise, a sort of weird park keeper, who they can't understand, yeah. dodgy, um, then it, you know, it, 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 it resonates, <laughs> and they kind of get it, and they buy into it, even if they don't get all the dialogue, or it's a sort absolutely. of aspirational thing, yeah, which absolutely. is a really clever way of doing it. Yeah, exactly, and we used archetypes in the, in the show, uh, family archetypes that could be fitted in anywhere in the world, and that's something I'll touch, touch on a bit later. Um, and the archetype 
model that we used really meant that we could show <coughs> elements of a parent's character traits filtering down to their children. And so there was this kind of matrix we made of how mm. the characters all interacted. And, it, and that, again, built itself into authentic, authenticity of yeah. family. Can, can you just tell us a little bit, Dave, about Clangers? Because that's, um, that's an interesting one, because it's a, it's a show that needs to work globally. Mm. Um, by globally, we tend to mean it needs to work in North America, by the way. That's the global bit, um, which is fine. But that is, a, you know, they do, it, it is, it's a different ideology. It's a different sensibility to the British sensibility, often, the, the North American yes. one. It's a different style. It's a bit more on the nose. We're a bit sort of self-deprecating, a little bit ironic, a bit quirky. If you look at something like Charlie and Lola, that's a very British sensibility. And often we are, you know, as writers, kind of shoehorn, have to shoehorn something in to make it work for a co-production that, that basically needs to, needs to sell. Um, so, Clangers, you, there was a clever... Clever way of getting around that. Yeah, clever and lucky, I think. Lucky way. Really lucky way, because there's no lip syncing clangers. So we had to work on, we had this, the heritage of clangers in the UK. You know, I was very nervous about working on it because, you know, you're dealing with something that nostalgically adults and grandparents love um, and was going to try to reach out to a new audience. So the idea was to continue the old series. That's the way I think we went for it. And, um, and I think we've achieved that, but the problem we had was in the US, they'd never seen the clangers before. They were just charming pink mole-like creatures to them that were knitted. So how, how did we sort of appeal to them? Because we had no lip sync, what we could do was apply two different narrators. So we got uh, Michael Palin for the UK, and as faithful as we could be to the original clangers, using that kind of narration, more whimsical, and just more thoughtful. Things didn't have to make sense. It was more surreal, I think. Um, and he did say, it was when I, went to, when I met him, and he'd say, this is actually like reading Python, in a way, <laughs> because it's, it's just so surreal. You know, maybe, maybe the clang has influenced us a lot, I don't know. Um, but in the US, um, it has to be a little more on the nose. It has to be more clearer about what we're trying to explain for the <laughs> show. and has to resolve itself a little more. And um, so they used William Shatner to do that, so, uh, which was, was awesome. So um, that's great. So you managed to, to, to sort of do a sort of dual-tone show. Yeah, so we changed so the narration, yeah. Co-production, Ali, you, you, you touched on the um, finance models and the co-production issues and how our um, partners, overseas partners, do affect our content. Lucy, let's get on to... You've been sitting there so patiently. Mm. Quiet. And now I'm going to do this. Yeah, going to Strike it, fear yeah. into uh, everyone's hearts. Um, <laughs> Bing Bunny, it really... I mean, it, again, it's not a four to six. It's not a four to six property. But it really did it's not. get as close <coughs> as possible to that real... Yes. Real and it, emotional... And it was part. described when we first pitched it to CBeebies as a reality show for preschoolers. And it was born out of frustration at many of the things we've been talking about today, where Ted Dwan, who's in the audience, had written a series of books for his daughter because he was so frustrated at the kind of utopian idyll presented in kids' storybooks, and he just didn't want to read them because they didn't reflect the reality that he was witnessing in his daughter's life. The struggles, which may seem tiny to us, but actually falling out with a friend or dropping an ice cream is huge when you're two or three. So he wrote a series of books that we then um, 
thankfully picked up and were we were very very committed to keeping that sense of reality authenticity and representing a child's actual life rather than the one we'd like them to have where nothing goes wrong and everyone's nice to each other um and it was so important to that desire to be truthful and representative of the life of a young child and we were so fortunate that the bbc bought into that 100 percent and completely supported us editorially um and we had an unprecedented level i've worked on many shows um we really did have an unprecedented level of editorial freedom and a sense of stretching those boundaries um and it was important because we all subscribed on the team to the theory that stories are equipment for life. And if we can tell stories that have emotional resonance and represent authentic challenges, however small they are, then we're equipping kids with the opportunity to deal with their own feelings and confront their own problems. And importantly, for parents to have that conversation with their own children. So if someone says to me, oh my God, since we've been watching Bing, my kid whinges all the time, my response to that is, great, they're talking to you, now talk back. Understand what they're whinging about and have that conversation. And you, but you have had some corkers, haven't you? In terms we of have had things. some corkers. I mean, we, we, well, for the first corkers and sort of navigating that editorial feedback, because if we had just been making Bing for the BBC, it literally would have been plain sailing, but... We're not. I mean, the BBC can't and didn't um, pay the full production budget. So we're taking money from overseas. We're also with an eye that even if we were very fortunate to have a lot of of private investment in Bing, but we're still needing to sell it overseas. So, of course, there's a lot of received wisdom about preschool and what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. And some of that, um, you know, we educational feedback we received early on so we they, we were asked to over explain what was going on which takes away from the kind of authentic conversational feel we wanted to dampen down the perceived bad behaviors and negative character traits so no squabbling no pushing but the secret life of four-year-olds shows that that's actually and anyone with a kid you know that's what happens um to us those suggestions moved us out of that kind of authenticity um, we didn't want to resolve things straight away because actually that's not what happens. Um, so rather than just, I mean, we rejected a lot of that educational feedback um, and actually then went into another kind of stage of the development process of thinking, OK, why is it that we're asked not to show anything that isn't resolved straight away? Um, then the feedback comes back, oh, well, it's in case the child looks away from the screen or they don't understand and they're left with the kind of bad situation but they don't know how it turns out so we just made sure that we made the show um, in a way that kids are not going to dip out of the narrative so we told it in real time there are no transitions no temporal cuts um, even situational cuts the camera stays with the protagonist all the way through an episode and what we found out when we tested those episodes is that really really young children who you wouldn't expect to stay tuned for seven minutes would literally move in and in and in and in and we filmed a lot of children watching Bing um, with cameras on the back of laptops so that we could see their response to particular moments and at sometimes watching it you'd think 
oh my god, breathe, 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 because you could see them going. <laughs> and they were so in those stories, it didn't matter that we didn't resolve the conflict instantly because they weren't moving away from it. Can I just chip in there? Because what you've, what you've raised there, Lucy, is that you were at the mercy of an educational ideology. Yes. And I think that that's possibly what's been going on for some appreciable time. Yes. For a long time, in fact. Mm. And, you know, I've been a governor of a primary school and gone in and, and, and seen what the teachers are what the teachers are telling the parents and the teachers are saying no child should be put under any stress you know never make them upset don't make them do that and I think we've kind of we've absorbed that in television and and perhaps now I sort of sense rather with cautious optimism especially when talking to um, people like um, Fiona and, and, and Becky and there was a lady on the radio on Radio 4 advocating this as well I think the the tide is slightly turning educationally and if the educational um, establishment move more towards a more risk-taking, more um, uh, um, emotionally um, um, real form of storytelling and, and, and allow that to happen. The mothers won't be on the phone to Alison. Or on or, Facebook. Or Facebook. And, and, and you've absolutely proved that if you do something real, it works. Yes, it does work. And I think it's, you know, resilience is a big buzzword at the moment in early years. Um, teaching children to be resilient emotionally is so important and it's part of our job as program makers to help that but you do get I mean social media is amazing and it allows you to have a conversation with your audience that you didn't necessarily get before but I've just got a couple of because I know poor CBeebies have had a lot of complaints about being in terms the main complaint is about language so here's one my two and a half year old daughter is sat watching Bing the English is terrible I can't believe how bad it is we have chosen CBeebies for our daughter because it's very educational, so I'm very surprised you have added Bing to the schedule. But what we discovered, if somebody posted something like that, is immediately they would get swamped with um, overwhelmingly positive um, support from other parents with the kind of comments of, um, this is actually from a dad, not a mum. Yours is a common complaint, but the point behind Bing is that it teaches behaviour, not language. The characters speak in that way because that's the way small children speak. It's designed to emulate the world of small children and the problems they face, albeit at a characterised, exaggerated level. And another one, Bing is a fabulous programme for preschoolers. It's up to us as parents to teach our children, not a programme. Uh-huh. And that's... <laughs> what, is it, though, what is it, though, that about television that parents feel um, they can leave the room and let their kids sit in front of anything and be safe and they get fed up if they're not... They're not um, uh, responding positively to it whereas they'll leave the room, they'll put them in front of a movie don't tell me mm. parents don't stick a movie on and go in the kitchen and have a fag they do, and suddenly it's a different thing so there's something about TV, isn't there that, that parents feel they sort of own it and they can complain, and particularly the BBC I suppose well, certainly the CBBS, yeah. yeah. I think mm. that the, the relationship with the audience and the parents as well as the children is, is critical to its success and every parent of a small child feels that we're making our programmes for their small child and, and it can get, you know, they can be deeply wounded if they think we're not doing what they want. But, you know, I, I, sorry I interrupted you, you, you should carry on because I don't know um, what else you want to, us all to talk about. Oh, well, I think, no, the only other thing I was going to say is that for every complaint we've had about, because we have had episodes in Bing that deal with death, that deal with loss, that deal with 
divorce actually even though they not overtly so um but when as we wrote them we were thinking okay this is the separation episode this is the divorce episode um for every episode we have had where parents say you should leave it to me to have that conversation we've had others um where we've got um you know this is one from you know i'm a teacher i have a degree in psychology but most importantly i'm a mother to a 16 month old we love watching Bing every morning and are both glued to the TV for the duration of the show. I love the morals behind each story. It teaches children so much about the correct way to behave and deals with issues that other programmes keep clear of, such as death. I cannot think of a better programme for my son to watch in order to reinforce the morals we teach him ourselves. And that's, you know, it, 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 it does say it all, you know. And what's interesting is that if, if the BBC and Lucy are getting sort of complaints they're getting about the emotional content in Bing, imagine then if we do it for four to six-year-olds on the linear channels, how many more complaints there'd be, because you'd have to push it further, obviously, to satisfy that audience. So I think it is a bit of a challenge, and I suppose now we've sort of teased out the whys and wherefores, it's really now about what we can do about it, and are there scheduling things that can be done, or, or are we looking at other platforms? I mean, I know, Lucy, you're, about to, you're now working on a whole new project with a a digital platform for five to nine-year-olds and actually the fact that we can program things that the CBBS and the BBC can't schedule and we can show things like short films for example which you know there are many many beautiful short films made that don't fit into a linear TV schedule but on a SVOD platform it's possible to put those things and allow children to find them so things are looking up. uh, Ali there's a new initiative coming out of yes um, it's you mentioned Netflix as being a favorite we all know that the the kids taking to YouTube in their millions Um, we know that some CBB's viewers love to watch CBB's age viewers love to watch um, CBBC shows Um, I think nearly a third of the kids who watch Scooby-Doo are four and yeah four and under that's the sat they love it and there are others and likewise there are some people uh, children who are older than six into CBBC who watch preschool stuff, the older there. So it's choice. It's all about choice. And everywhere these kids go now, they have choices about what they do, uh, what they watch, what they engage with. So um, I don't know who was in the uh, opening session yesterday, but Alice Webb, um, the new director of Children's, was talking about an initiative at the BBC, which is a pan-BBC idea, which is all about personalisation, which you hear that word a lot. Um, there, there's a lot of policy to get through. It's, it's a, a project called My BBC, and the idea being that through um, protected areas, you can give a child of any age and up into adulthood their own area of the BBC for them to collect the things they like. So if, if you're a, a young child who loves to watch um, Bing, but also you quite like cartoons, so you want to take something from CBBC, a parent can help the children collect... It's not just the programmes, there would be links to activities because obviously they are now used to interacting more and more with brands. They don't just watch anymore. We haven't talked at all about the way that they, they will use an app or a game and the way that they are increasingly looking at short-form content. So if my BBC can come through the big issue of sign-in, and it is a big issue, it will actually end up being that for your two-year-old you can have a page which you are responsible for For your four-year-old, you and your four-year-old can choose what they want to have there. And then, I guess, 
you're beginning to get to a place where whatever age a child is, whatever you want for your child, um, whatever their tastes are, they're actually going to be able to collect things from a wider place and protect the young children who are watching on linear who may not have a parent or carer there to help them deal with some of the issues that we're talking about. It's a brilliant initiative. Um, so it's it, build, it, build your own channel for your It'll kids. be like I mean, your, my BBC is, is a good name for it. because it's yeah. mm. Thank you. Mm. I think we should come over to everybody on the floor now and see if there are any questions. Yes. Becky. Um, I just thought I ought to say that I'm not the most callous person in the world, and I didn't really say it. Just it's just a learn, <laughs> but I, I well I kind of did. But what I wanted to say about that is the um, the importance when you build in a fearful or complex or difficult um, element within a, a text for children. And um, there's lo lots of research that that discusses the importance of of children encountering. Um, difficulty and challenge and fear, fearful situations within um, either the media or the storytelling or the narratives they encounter because that puts those issues at a distance that they can then cope with them and deal with them. Um, and, you know, if they never encounter those um, experiences in, their f in the fictional worlds that they encounter, then you kind of worry about those um, issues about resilience. Um, and I d but I just, uh, the question that I have really is about, you, there's two words that have been mentioned that I think are really important. So self-regulation, which I think is, um, I really felt for your example there, I'm kind of, your and your head, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but, but that kind of, n the notion of, the, of we know what we'll get complaints about. And so, mm. therefore, we'll self-regulate. But also, why why are we paying so much attention to the complainers? Who are the complainers, and who don't complain? And who are the programmes for? Um, how are we constructing, you know, children and families that we think that the the person with the sort of cultural capital that comes forward and, and complains is the person whose voice we should listen to? So. Um, uh, you know, so uh, should we be trying to educate the mothers and the parents and and, and put that stuff out there anyway? Or should we just be ignoring ignoring them? Uh, well, <laughs> I, think, I think the BBC probably think they do have a duty of care to um, the, the parental audience. It's a very tricky one. Um, yes, actually, we will move on if we can because we're yeah, sorry, really uh, tight. Just to carry on from that is... Uh, the more of a statement rather than a question. Uh, the, the going on from that, uh, the broadcasters and the people who produce, write, do storyboards and everything else, they're obviously responsible for what content they show. Surely it's up to the parents, being a parent, that's myself, surely it's up to the parents to take responsibi uh, responsibility for their own mm. censorship of what the children are watching. Parents should be parents, you're saying? Uh, like well, effectively, like yes. Are, yes, like they are in the supermarket aisle. Yeah. No, you can't have the crisps. Uh, to the end of the day, uh, yeah, uh, to be perfectly uh, naive, mm. there's I always the off button. Yes, yeah. I, think, I think we all agree, but yeah. I think coming back to Alison, that, that, you know, yes, we agree in principle, but that's a very tough call, isn't it, for a broadcaster to address? I think, um, you know, all, all the things that, that you were just saying, Becky, uh, we agree with. Um, I think if you are a, an engaged parent, you are going to deal with your child the way that, that you want to deal with them and introduce them to topics the way you want to do it. I've just There's a point about reading books to children. If you read a book, you can deal with anything in that book because you'll buy them and you can explain it, you can put things into a context. You put something on the television, you cannot guarantee there's an adult there who's actually helping and we're not talking about the four to sixes because, as you say, they're then beginning to develop their own opinions. But 
our channel does have children of that younger age, and so that's the difficult bit. But I do think, you know, it, it isn't... It's not, almost not a parent trap. It's a broadcaster trap. I think that's what it is. You know, the parents have the ability to introduce their children. They have the ability not to watch something if they don't want their child to see it. Um, and we don't have the ability as a broadcaster to please everyone all the time. And we can't do that. We do our Thank best. You. Any more questions? Hi, Rachel Morell. I, I write a bit of preschool now and then. For me as a writer, and I know lots of others, is there's a constant concern about the imitable behaviour issue. And those are also um, things that vary from culture to culture. And some of us, I think, would argue that we could show a child doing something, a child character doing something like going up a ladder, which um, results in uh, a fall or an accident, and, and contextualise that kind of risk. Um, but it's difficult sometimes for some broadcasters to accept that. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing any guidelines, and possibly there shouldn't be guidelines, because these things can move too. But I'm really encouraged by what somebody said earlier about research is showing actually that people are, that, that kids are better at distancing themselves. So I just wondered what, what particularly Alison feels um, about the imitable behaviour issue and whether that's also something that can move. Um, those two words strike fear into our hearts. Um, imitable behaviour, imitable behaviour. Um, and it's all again down to a two-year-old sitting on their own, watching a television, misinterpreting something, um, toddling off and doing exactly the same thing. Um, and it only takes one child to do that and it be identified. Um, for the BBC, you know how the BBC is under scrutiny at all times. So it is a, a fear, you're right, um, and it is a duty of care to those children without engaged parents who, who may see something that they just don't understand. But there are, there are ranges of... Um, restriction and I think it, it, it used to be seen as a bit of a blanket oh we can't do that because the child might imitate it I think we're working very hard to be a little bit more selective in that respect now um, but you, you know there is one incontrovertible fact that if the little child watches something gets it wrong you know pulls a saucepan off the top of the cooker and schools themselves then it will be seen as the BBC's fault and, and that so, really is it's more of this is leading on to sort of more of a compliance issue mm. than a sort of emotional authenticity. But, but you know, you're absolutely right. We, mm. we do get But the complaints, they come from the... Whether yeah. it's that's yeah. too dangerous or yeah, whether exactly. I don't want my child <laughs> exactly. to learn, it's, it's the parents actually mm. imposing a restriction almost more strongly than we do. I think we might have time for one more question. Oh. Um, my name's Alex. Uh, I'm working at a um, 2D animation studio and we've got something that we uh, would like to develop for a younger age um, but the character in question was quite naughty and uh, they were quite rude so in Please preschool well we really want to <laughs> we really want to but this is kind of frightening me a little bit because I'm thinking of this character and thinking well they're naughty they're rude you know they they burp and they fart and they get in trouble and is that would, is that honestly is that just yeah. is that just not going to be a, you I know, think you should have a go <laughs> we'd love to have a go, go. Yeah. Yeah. we're all for you having a go okay we'll have a because go because actually I think on a positive note I do think things are changing I think they're not just changing here but I think they're changing worldwide in terms of uh, more risk taking and having to have more baddies and the idea of baddies and conflict I think it is changing and there's that word that Lucy used which is authentic yeah. and authentic is is if you're writing truly 
um, about a child who's behaving as children do, you can actually move things along. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's writing not from a child's point of view sometimes that, that brings issues that aren't so acceptable. So I don't know where you are, Alex, because it's a bit bright. Hi. But <laughs> hello. Yeah, do come and talk to us. Okay, thank you. Well, That's thank encouraging. That's the takeaway. Um, we have to stop. We've run out of time. There is a red light. Um, I do want to thank all of you so much for coming and making the effort and getting up so early. That was absolutely brilliant. We were expecting, you know, two men and a dog. Um, and uh, I want to thank Rebecca Fox for producing the session and Jocelyn Stevenson for execing the session. Um, it's been a pleasure to chair this panel. Thank you so much to our panellists. Really informative, terrific stuff. Thank you all so much. <laughs>